This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I don't know if it's because my parents took me to like Fellini movies when I was a little boy and I had had no idea what was going on and probably shouldn't have been there. But I actually lean in to something when I can't quite figure it out. And to me, that's the dance of participation mm-hmm. with the viewer. So I, I like it when things are a little vague. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. I am so, so excited to hear more of the conversation we just heard a little, little, little tease of. But before we get to that, how are you? Karen, it's been so long. I know. I am <laughs> very well, thank you. I'm in Scotland this week and oh, I'm wow. not fully adjusted to British summertime, so I'm slightly jet lagged. But other than that, I'm totally swell. Very happy to talk to you today. Yeah, I was going to say, I know it's a little later for you right now. I'm recording at 11 a.m. my time, but for you, it's like nighttime. Yes, 7 o'clock. When you and I talk, uh, when we're in our different uh, mm-hmm. locations, we have that eight-hour time difference. We get to, <laughs> you know, span the world of different meals that we're about to eat or have just eaten. That's just the power of working. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so who did you talk to for the podcast this week? So I spoke with Elliot Lawrence, who is the creator of Claws, amazing show, and the love creator. Claws. I don't love it too. And he's also the creator and showrunner of Motherland Fort Salem, which is a show I absolutely love and which we focused on this week in our conversation because it recently started airing its third and final season. And I wanted to chat with him because Motherland Fort Salem which is such a mouthful, but it's, it just kind of emphasizes what a weird show it is. That like, of course, that's its name, Motherland Fort Salem. And it's like the craziest, most over-the-top show I've watched in a long time. It has so much mythology, so many different kinds of magic, so much weird alternative American history. Mm-hmm. It's much too much. And yet <laughs> I think it's just one of the most fun and weird and surprising shows on television. And I suspect that if it were aimed at another demographic instead of the young women who are its main audience, Mm. it would have gotten a lot more attention because its vision of America and the world is is just really interesting and weird and over the top, but also Mm -hmm. just really interesting. I'm very excited to listen to your conversation with Elliot because you've told me before that you thought that I would really love the show because I'd love over the top things. Yes. Um, And I also wanted to ask, what did you guys talk about for the Slate Plus segment this week? So I asked Elliot about one of the pieces of magic that exists on the show, which allows witches, who are the characters, the main characters, to change their faces and how that concept played into his ideas about how he could use his lead actresses. I don't Mm. want to get too spoilery, but I will say that I think anyone who watches the show will be interested in what he had to say. That's fascinating. And also like kind of stressful to think about, even from my uh, pre-conversation perspective. Um, So listeners, if you also want to find out what it is like to deal with witch powers in that context. Why don't you sign up for Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like The Culture Gap Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. 
All right, let's hear June's conversation with Elliot Lawrence. Elliot Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. I wanted to have you as a guest because I really enjoy your shows and I'm fascinated by them from a creative process point of view. Um, by the time this show airs, the third and final season of Motherland Fort Salem will be airing. I feel bad asking this because it's a very complex show. But for any of our listeners who haven't seen it, I'm curious to hear how you would describe it. So it just started with this provocative question that stuck in my head and kind of wouldn't go away. And that question was, what if one of the Salem witches was a witch? And what if she cut a deal? And then we were we were kind of off to the races. And sometimes I feel like you can find these little questions that are so rich that they just keep giving you more questions and answers. And it, it felt like that. So I would describe the show as a an alternate America where one of the, the Salem witches cut a deal with the proto-American military and uh, wars are fought with weather and, and disease. And within this sort of pocket matriarchy, things were very different. And, you know, witchhood is traced down the maternal line. So it's a story about sisterhood and mm -hmm. duty and terror and, and <laughs> thrills from a young female perspective. Yeah. And there's romance too, right? There's uh, oh, yeah. like all human life is there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so as I said, it's an incredibly complex show. I, I'm very impressed at how you could give a kind of top level version of it there. And it has what I think of as mythology, an awful lot of mythology, a lot of, as you said, alternative history, magic, struggles, rivalries. Um, and I'd love to hear why it drew you as something that might work as a TV show for young people, because these ideas of history and security and war are not ones that we typically associate with young women's television. You know, it was just about flipping the expectation about the, what those kind of stories could feel like. And for me, it was about the combination of those three women, and, and they were from very different parts of witchhood, and they brought with them different sort of baggage about mm. their witchhood. You know, for Abigail, she's sort of a military aristocrat, so she saw all of this coming, and she feels like, you know, being a soldier is her destiny. For Tally, it, you know, she her mom was a pacifist who was able to avoid service, which is very unusual for a military witch. So she kind of grew up in this hippie commune and, and Raelle, you know, her mom was gone for most of her childhood. She was deployed and, and she brings that kind of sadness with her. So you're seeing it really basically as, you know, three young women and these are the things in their lives that they're facing. And you're not so much thinking about war and history as... It's just where they landed, yeah. you know, it just happened yeah. to be the, the place I dropped them and... Yeah. It resonated uh, with the trio somehow, this idea and, and how essential they would be to a lot of stuff that changes in the world of Motherland. Yeah. Do you have a favorite bit of magic or mythology or whatever you want to call it? So we call it work in the show because magic yeah. felt too light. Mm. But my favorite piece of work, 
I think it was a piece of very, very dark magic we saw in season two where the spree were using a human person kind of as a voodoo doll to send damage to Alder. So the person was drinking molten metal, as you do, and uh, that damage was transferred across space and time to Alder. I liked that because it was a reinvention of a traditional kind of sympathetic magic that we're familiar with. You do this over here, but something happens over there. But it felt horrible and, and motherlandy. And it's really hard to pick because the magic is, is probably one of my favorite parts of the show. I love that the magic of the show is almost science fictional. It's not so much about ancient languages and sacred mm-hmm. magic words. It's about frequencies of sound. And so I like being on that knife's blade between genres a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because with each answer you mention, you know, you'll just say sort of one little thing and I think, oh, yeah, there's that's a, a whole other area of the show. I mean, the songs, the chords, this idea of using your voice, it's incredibly resonant, um, you know, the idea Literally. of... Yeah, exactly. And also of, you know, women keeping someone alive by their, you know, their love, their support, the biddies with Alder. And yet it's all very, you can kind of see a clear, I want to say allegory. I don't know if that's quite right. Like when you were creating this, you were coming up with so many different things that you have going on in the show. On what level were you thinking, I'm writing an allegory about modern American life? I guess I was thinking in terms of um, female power Mm. and the power of being othered, being a source of strength rather than victimhood, I guess. I think those were sort of, if I was making an allegorical statement about anything, it would would probably be about those two things. I think it's essentially very queer show, even if all of the Storylines aren't necessarily queer, 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 queer. It's essentially queer because it's about a group of people who have been othered. Mm-hmm. You know, society in this world ha- has actually turned witchhood into a race. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? And it's mm-hmm. tracked that way. So those are the thematic kind of, if I'm making a, a painting on a cave wall, those are the big <laughs> characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and, and just the way that, I very much understand that queerness isn't just about sex and relationships, but all of the intimacy in the show is, in a sense, also quite queer. You know, whatever gender people sleep with, it's a very open, very accepting. Um, Did you have any issues with that when you are, again, I, I don't know what to what extent you think of this as a show for young people, but I don't know if it was in season one where there's, is it May Day where, you know, everybody just gets to, you know, frolic. Uh, yeah. with a partner or with more than one partner. And women get to frolic in a way that yes. is, is, it doesn't complicate their lives with all these right. kinds of consequences and yes. labels. Did you ever run into any issues with having such a sort of pro, sort of positive view of sex and sexuality? We were so lucky with Freeform. There wasn't so much as a flicker of an eyelash or a single pearl clutched it was just completely open. It wasn't even a conversation, which says so much about, I don't know, where we are as a business and a world, hopefully. In season three, which will be airing by the time this interview airs, um, you know, again, it's, it's a quite a complex show, but one of the sort of the plot points is that the three central characters are on the run 
and you have this feeling of being chased without necessarily any justice they're being you know they're being targeted again that feels like another quite allegorical story i mean were you going for a sort of undocumented immigrant story i think never never so clearly because i think i would mess it up if i were so prescriptive about Mm it so it's in my consciousness but never so direct i prefer it to kind of infuse the tea as it were and then and then hopefully come out in an interesting way but there's a lot of that you know there's you know the invasion of a sovereign nation is something that we tackle in season three it's you know and then all of the proud boy stuff and yeah what i love about speculative fiction is that you can kind of talk about this stuff in a slightly unburdened way and and hopefully kind of reflect in a cool way. I hope it lands that way. Yeah. I feel like I keep repeating myself and saying that it is incredibly complex. And I personally love that. But I have found it difficult to explain to people. And I wonder that when you were making the show, I imagine it just kind of makes it hard for casual visitors to pick up what's going on. Um, What have you done as over the three seasons to kind of try to help orient people who haven't necessarily been there since day one to just kind of help them connect with the show? The network is very helpful with stuff like that. You know, we are so kind of, as writers, we're so in the forest of what we're building. A lot of times we lose some of the details. So the network always has an eye on that. You know, how does a new viewer walk into this and kind of orient themselves? So Sometimes that means a bit more exposition in the dialogue than I would prefer. You know, I'm the type, I don't know if it's because my parents took me to like Fellini movies when I was a little boy <laughs> and I had had no idea what was going on and probably shouldn't have been there. But I actually lean in to something when I can't quite figure it out. And to me, that's the dance of participation mm-hmm. with the viewer. So I, I like it when things are a little vague and, and you have to kind of kind of get closer. But we try our best there. Like you said, there's a complicated mythology and you just don't want to burden the human stuff, which is what people really love with yeah. all of the pipe. Yeah. I mean, have you felt, do you feel that you've overcomplicated the show? I mean, there's just so much going on. Have you ever regretted anything that you kind of introduced and thought, oh, I wonder if we should just have kept that a little simpler? I can't think of one. I kind of like the maximalist, you know, <laughs> let's have another, <laughs> let's have another storyline. In fact, we laugh about this in post a lot because, you know, after commercials, we're 39 minutes, but we always pack in like an hour and a half worth of stuff and yeah. world and, you know, but I think there's probably a benefit to pulling back on some so that certain things could stand out more clearly, but We've gone for an entertaining kind of maximalist, keep it coming kind of vibe. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Elliot Lawrence. (laughs) 
Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you want to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs with us, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Elliot Lawrence. I want to go back just a little bit because I'm curious. We talked about it just slightly, but I'm always curious about how creators kind of recognize an idea because I'm sure you have lots and lots of ideas all the time. How you recognize that this was the one, this was a story that you were going to, you know, really develop, that you were going to try to sell, that you were, that now you've been, you know, spending a lot of time with. Did you have a sense that Motherland Fort Salem or whatever it was called when you were, you know, thinking it up in your mind, did you have a sense that it was going to fly? It had an attractive quality that is does stand out because yes, there are a lot of ideas. And what does that quality feel like? It's a little like, you know, you're facing the blank page and you start putting some stuff down, but then you start to feel like somebody's looking out from the blank page at you. And you'll, you know, you'll live your life and you'll go back to the idea and it will somehow have accumulated a little bit on its own. Like it just has this life, mm. you know, mm. simply that. And it keep you keep thinking about it and, and the questions are so juicy and the what ifs are so juicy. I think that's how you know. Mm. But do um, you ever know? I don't know? Yeah, no, yeah. We are indeed coming into the third and final season. I don't usually have this response because I love television, but, you know, as I watch this show with all that it has going on and all of the interesting ideas that it has introduced, I'm really sorry it's going away. And I wonder, have you thought about writing books or otherwise kind of returning to this scenario, this premise, or is it over for you when the season ends? I don't think it's ever going to be over for this one because it just has that sort of like striking oil kind of font of forever givingness about it. It just feels like that kind of world. And I feel like there could be many, I'd love to do a graphic novel. Uh I'd love to do a movie perhaps. Um, Yeah. I think it, there's a lot more to do in this world and we end season three. I can't say too much, but we end season three with a real flip on what we think a witch really is. Mm. And it kind of could propel and reinvent the show at the same time. So we love the show so dearly. We're so grateful for these three years, but I think there's more. I definitely okay. do. I look forward to that. Um, as we've said, there are three young women at the center of the show. One of them, Rael, is in love with and involved with Scylla, another woman, There's been a lot of controversy that has been kind of shorthanded as TV's kill your gaze trope, um, especially in shows that are aimed at young audiences. So, you know, meaning that a lot of shows, especially with lesbian relationships with young women, they always like one of them dies uh, and it's tragic and it kind of hurts young women. Do you feel that that campaign has narrowed your options as a creator? Um, This is a show where everyone is in peril. Everyone is constantly in mortal danger. But if you kill off a lesbian character, there would be a backlash. Has that had an effect on your vision for this story? Not particularly. And there's something perhaps kind of 
basic about me that just a bit wants to give people what they want. And I don't want to hurt any more feelings about rail. And so I don't, I can't promise you a perfect story where, you know, that everything is, is, you know, butterflies and sprinkles, but I'm not, we're not hurting anybody's feelings anymore about those two. It's so lovely to see them face some relationship stuff together, which Mm -hmm. they've never really had time to do. Mm -hmm. Nobody's safe as you pointed out, but it's a very interesting question. I, I kind of don't, hopefully I don't let it in that much when I'm mm-hmm. making my decisions. I try to connect to that little quiet voice that kind of knows stuff, but it's easy mm-hmm. to not hear sometimes. Yeah. So I never would have wanted to do that anyway. So You have been the showrunner of Motherland Fort Salem. Uh, TV is kind of unusual in that creators who you know, have an almost impossible job to begin with, are encouraged to take on, you know, this big extra role, this decision-making work of show running. Have you enjoyed the process? And what have you learned from it? Oh, it's humbling. So I created another show called Claws, which I was not a sh- the showrunner of. I was lucky enough to work with a lady named Janine sherman Barois, who was absolutely brilliant and had come up in television in a very solid way. So I got to see how it was done and done well during clause and and you know still i was desperately trying to catch up when i got on motherland and it is you bring up a really great point which is that writers are weirdos who like to be alone <laughs> why should i be in control of 200 people <laughs> like it, it's a bit of a stretch uh-huh. um, but i've learned a ton and and you know the writers who have come on the show have made my ideas so much better than they ever would have been on on their own but it's hard. It's hard. And it is, I think a lot of it is your, your point that I'm a hardcore introvert and <laughs> I'm very sensitive and, you know, it's hard to be the guy giving negative notes, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and asking for more and more and more, which is what you're doing as a, a showrunner mostly. But um, it's a thrilling job, but it's a really, it's really a tough one. Television is also famously collaborative, as, as you mm-hmm. also just mentioned. Has there been a particular collaboration in the process of Motherland Fort Salem that you have particularly learned from and that you, you know, just completely expanded your view of what's possible in a, in a kind of creative environment? I would call out our wonderful production designer from season three, Jerry Wanick. Mm -hmm. I told him when we were rapping that I want to be just like him when I grow up because he is a beautiful manager of creative people. And and that means a lot of other weirdos who are probably (laughs) more happy making, you know, art in their rooms, but he did it so gracefully and uh, he did it in a firm way, but a kind way and a really balanced way. So I, you know, they did uh, Supernatural for over a decade, oh, wow. and, and it was a team that had sort of grown up together. So I like being around that kind of energy and aspire to be more of a team player like him. Could you just kind of clarify what that role, so what, what would they be responsible for on the show? What Really, as broad as the look of the show, but any kind of set, any kind of location, posters, furniture just the the visual world of the show mm-hmm. ice caves and marketplaces in ghana which i'm teasing some stuff from the season Ooh. but yeah just unflappable nothing that we we asked for was too big and we were always met with humor so that's that kind of grounded kind of role model that i i look for in this business because yeah. it's, it's easy to get stressed out and overwhelmed and 
lose your cool. Yeah. So how how have you avoided getting stressed out? Because it must just be incredibly stressful. <sighs> I take a lot of walks. Like it's pretty darn boring, but I'm a big walker. It really resets my brain for writing. Um, I go to bed pretty early and get up pretty early because the mornings are so peaceful. Mm-hmm. Those are a couple of little things I do. But uh, I'm mostly just fighting through the stress and just trying to get to the other side of it. It's funny. I've often asked that question to people and many people say walks. It's a a very effective way of not only de-stressing, but kind of generating new ideas as well, it seems. It's so good. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you were also the creator of another show with women at its center, Claws, another fantastic show. Why are you so drawn, do you think, to shows with women at their center? It might be my relationship with my own masculinity, probably like it's, I maybe dream in woman and I, <laughs> and I feel in woman and I, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I'm kind of female identified at least in some ways mentally. And I find female stories more interesting and I find brilliant, complicated women more interesting, you know, and, and I'm just happy to put them in the center of my creations. And I don't know if I'll ever change. It's hard to imagine you know, you talk, you think about writing what you know, but I don't want to see something about some weird gay guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I don't know if I want to watch that, but, you know, a brilliant, you know, mafioso nail artist, you know, I, I can watch that kind of show or like a witch military. It's, it's me, but it's removed or something. Are there things that you do to make sure that there are as many women as possible involved in your shows? What have you done around that? We do. We make sure the writer's room is really balanced. I think it's always been mostly female. Um, On the freeform side, there's a lot of powerful women that we Mm -hmm. answer to, female executives that have been really wonderful and and have taken care of the show and defended it. And, you know, on set, as many women as possible. And we use a lot of female directors. And we have a brilliant lady named Amanda Tapping, who's our producing director. She's a bit of sci-fi royalty, a Brit. Oh. And she she's the lady on the ground who kind of has all the directors coming and going and making sure they're shooting one show. So yeah. there's a lot of powerful women on the show, I guess, is the answer. It would have to be that way. And so just so I'm clear that the producing director is the person who's like, she might direct an episode herself, but mostly she kind of makes sure that the directors are all kind of making the same show, even though they're yep. just coming in maybe for one episode. Absolutely. Um, in Amanda's case, she does three or four a year usually herself but just as you said sort of oversees it and make sure it all feels like the same show again i've really enjoyed this show it's so bonkers it's so great uh (laughs) i really love it so thank you for creating it thank you so much for this this was such an honor thank you very much Okay, I want to start off with something pretty basic, which is to ask, how did you find out about Motherland Fort Salem and what compelled you to first start watching it and then keep watching it? So this will reveal that I am a sucker for a well-framed press release. (laughs) But when I got the first promotional email from Freeform announcing the show, I read it. I thought, wow, that sounds ridiculous. And I just (laughs) knew I had to check it out. 
And this morning I dug through my email archive so I could find the actual paragraph that hooked me. And here it is. Set in an alternative present day America where witches ended their persecution 300 years ago by cutting a deal with the burgeoning US government to fight for their country. (laughs) Motherland Fort Salem follows three young women from basic training in combat magic into terrifying and thrilling early deployment. In this world, the traditional roles of gender and power are flipped with women on the front lines fighting looming terrorist threats that are strikingly familiar to our own world, but with supernatural tactics and weapons. <laughs> That's like, awesome. what? And so I actually usually dislike supernatural elements, oh. but this time around, I love it. And to reuse a word I may already have used too many times today, it's bonkers, but in the best possible way. What about this show makes you overcome your dislike for supernatural stuff in movies and TV? I think it is the over the topness. Like, I guess you could say okay. that supernatural elements are always over the top. Right. But there's a certain kind of thing that these days, I think it's just a curse on like the creative output. Like this thing that if mortality is questionable, like mm-hmm. then what is the point of anything that happens in any fictional universe? Mm. You know, you, there are certain rules that just need to apply. But this show is just, and it's just, it doesn't take itself too seriously despite having all these weird rules and weird, and also it's very, <laughs> I think I, I mentioned in the interview, mm-hmm. there was an episode in season one, which is about, I think it's May Day, basically, where everybody just gets to, you know, get it on. And <laughs> it was just like, wow, okay. Anybody who puts this kind of weird magic into their show, I got to applaud it. <laughs> so it's, it sounds like it's equal parts. Number one, committing to the bit. And then number two, still sort of having stakes that aren't like, oh, nobody's going to die. Yes, absolutely. Very well put. Commit to the bit, but also, (laughs) yeah, it can all end tomorrow. Yeah. Um, So you talk a little bit about the things that set the show apart from that kind of over-the-topness, like its straightforward approach to queer relationships and the sensation of being other in a given society or community. And I think that it's sort of something that's come up recently in storytelling with regards to how to do it without being too self-congratulatory, if that makes sense, or like making a big deal out of it when it should be kind of more natural, which it seems like this show achieves. How do you approach this conundrum in storytelling and what do you think is a good example of it done well? I absolutely know what you mean. And Mm. I think in the case of this particular show, it's the way that they connect ideas and experiences. Mm -hmm. So the queer relationship at the center of the show, it's been there almost from the beginning. And there were things that were keeping the women apart that were not about their being gay. It wasn't homophobia, even internalized or externalized or anything. It was essentially trust issues about, you know, the families they came from or the kinds of childhood they had or their vision for the future, their philosophy of witchcraft. So all whatever was going on on the screen, you actually knew if that were this world, it would be mm-hmm. this other thing. And to take another example... Um, In this version of American history, we don't seem to have had chattel slavery in the United States. Um, Because I guess 
the witches, you know. Um, <laughs> okay. There are very powerful black women. Certainly, America is a multiracial society. The world, mm-hmm. you know, is in some ways quite similar to the way it is now. Um, but the bellwether line of witches, who are African American, they're being targeted in a very specific way mm. that feels quite powerful because we viewers who are living in the real world, so much fun these days, rather than in the alternative history. Like, we appreciate when something happens to black women, we feel its impact, you know, in this particular world. So Mm -hmm. subtle isn't a word that we should really be using very often while talking about Motherland Fort Salem, but that aspect of the show is handled with some delicacy, I'd say. And to delve a little further, I guess, into the storytelling of the show, I wanted to ask a similar question about exposition, uh, especially in stories like the show where lore and an understanding of how magic works and all of these kind of ancient things like is important for the viewer to know. You have to explain it somehow. What do you think is the key to doing that in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's easier in a supernatural show than it might be on, say, a soap opera where mm-hmm. you have to know like 15 <laughs> relationships back yeah. and how these people know each other and how they actually used to play their same character, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and they're dead, but they're not back. Yeah, but, but it's they're, a twin. Yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, they're evil twins, whatever. Um, as I mentioned in the interview, one of my favorite bits of magic on the show are the biddies, which to give a very quick explanation, General Sarah Alder who is the commander of the U.S. Witch Armed Forces, you'll never Mm. get to say that again, is (laughs) hundreds of years old. Like, she negotiated the Salem Accords 300 years ago, and she's been kept alive by a group of companion witches who kind of take on her years. Like, they age so she doesn't have to. And, you know, they probably explain this at least once, but we've also seen the magic happen two or three times. So even if a viewer hasn't really caught on to the specifics of the biddies, mm-hmm. you can figure it out when you see like a 25-year-old rapidly go through about <laughs> six tons of aging makeup and, you know, lay down her life for her 333-year-old commander. You know, so it's so much easier, I think, when there is a supernatural element. Mm-hmm. Hearing you describe these aspects of the show, I'm so, so sad that it's coming to an end because I, I, I feel like I would just want to watch more of it and more of it. Um, yes. And with that said, Elliot's rumination over the story kind of never being over, at least in his head, was something I really connected with because I think if you really love a story, whether you're the person who's creating it or you're the person who's consuming it, you keep thinking about it after it's done if it's something that you really loved. Yeah. Is there a productive way of channeling that energy? Like, do you try to do a spin off or do you try to turn your brain off or oh, what do you do? I really have to apologize for this being a particular obsession of mine. I feel like I'm always asking like people who create fiction about mm. this because um, <laughs> I just hate it when stories that I like come to an end. I really like these characters and yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want it to be over. And I think for writers of fiction, whatever genre they work in, the sensible thing is to say goodbye to the characters and the setting and all that stuff because... That's the only way that you can move on. If you're constantly living with, you know, your 2020 creation, how are you going to get to your 2030 creation Mm -hmm. at the same time? (laughs) I really want Elliot Lawrence to make an exception for this project because, like, there's so much there and it just needs to be like a comic book series or maybe six comic books and a movie. 
And I really loved your discussion with Elliot about the kill your gaze trope because it's still <laughs> such a problem in most oh mainstream God. media, as well as what Elliot had to say about wanting to give the audience what they want. Because I think it's hard not to think about that as you're creating any given thing. And I'm curious how much you think about your audience on any given project, particularly in terms of gearing what you're working on specifically for them. Yeah, This particular specific dilemma is something Mm -hmm. that I'm really torn about because Mm -hmm. the history of gay TV characters and especially lesbian characters being killed off right when they find themselves in a happy relationship, Mm -hmm. it's just terrible in so many ways, you know. At the same time, I hate taking any creative option away from writers. So I really liked his response, which was basically, why on earth would I want to hurt them? Because, yeah, ultimately... Why? Yeah. But to put that in terms of respecting your audience, you know, that is to say, to answer your question, I think um, (laughs) it's about kind of keeping open the possibility of surprise, you know, Mm because that's ultimately what I think anybody watching or reading, like you want to feel that you're in this world, but you're also still capable of something coming out of left field and, and, you know, having that element of, wow, I didn't see that coming. And, you know, I have to say in that particular trope, you just you know, like show the obvious a little bit of respect and don't you know don't don't manipulate them only to you know hurt them in the most predictable way just don't be lazy basically yeah, I mean, I think that is what a lot of kind of storytelling problems boil down to, where it's like, it's not that this action in particular is bad or you shouldn't do it. It's just that if you do it thoughtlessly or without thinking through the story, then it's like, what are you doing? Yeah, why? Why? <laughs> I also found it really interesting that Elliot is someone who describes himself as an introvert because he's a creator and showrunner, which is arguably the kind of highest management position in that particular totem pole. Do you consider yourself an introvert and have you had to learn how to navigate that? Well, I think that like a lot of writers who have become podcast hosts, (laughs) I can go either way. Like I'm Mm -hmm. definitely an introvert. I love being on my own. I find humans basically tiring, human interaction. (laughs) Um, But... If I should find myself standing right next to a spotlight, I will very happily walk into it. Um, I think for me, the key is that management, like hosting a podcast, like talking to a room full of people, it's a performance. Like you do need to be authentic. You need to be honest, but you don't have to be the exact same self that you are when you're at home on your own on the couch watching TV or reading a book. You, You know, don't make shit up but you don't you you know it's okay to to you know adopt a persona in order to get stuff done i guess it's a similar answer to the previous question which is like just think about it and don't take it too far (laughs) exactly exactly but i I mean don't you think though that I, i want you to answer the question okay do you consider yourself an introvert and how do you handle things like hosting a podcast or making a pitch my Myers-Briggs is starts with an E, so technically Whoa. that test says I'm an extrovert, but I would say I feel like I fall pretty squarely in the middle of the two extremes, yeah. where I like going out and seeing friends, but only a couple times a week, you know? Yeah. Like, I yeah. still really value my alone time, and I also feel like I'm pretty grumpy or cynical most of the time, where, like, if I don't like a person, then I'm just like, okay, this interaction's over <laughs> and I done. don't want to deal with it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. But for instance, like I like podcast hosting. I like hanging out with my friends, but there's there's a limit to it, which is I, yeah. which is why I put myself in the middle. Yeah. Um, well, I I am literally EI 
split. So yeah, oh, same Z's. Same. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's got to be a third letter for the middle. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Don't mess with Mister in between. That's the message. <laughs> um, and I had one last thing I wanted to say, which ties back to an, an a part of the introduction that you did, which is I just wanted to say that I, I loved Claws so much. It was such a good show. <laughs> I know, but you know, I, it, this is a really weird thing for me because I thought that season one was absolutely perfect. Like mm-hmm. it was full of surprises and really interesting people to root for and a different set of characters than we usually see on TV. Mm-hmm. Great story. And I start watching like mm. it's 2022. So I'm sure that I can catch up on it at some point. But I've always felt weird about that. Like, I picked it as my top show in 2017, mm-hmm. and then I never watched another episode. But I <laughs> love, absolutely unreservedly, I love everything about it. But I just felt like I would be disappointed after just Aww. what a fantastic first season it was, it had. That's kind of a nice reason to stop watching, though. It's not because <laughs> yeah. you didn't like it or you stopped right. or you lost interest. You're just like, this memory is so perfect for me, and I just want to keep it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like when people save the last episode of a television show they love and don't watch it. <laughs> yes, I do that all the time. I do. Really? Yes, absolutely. That's. Are you going to do it with uh, Motherland Fort Salem? Oh, God. <laughs> ask, ask, ask me when it's over. Yeah, okay, I will. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gab Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Elliot Lawrence and to our magical producer, Cameron Drews, who I'm pretty sure has about 16 sets of biddies (laughs) maintaining his youthful appearance. We'll be back next week with my conversation with animal trainer Sarah Clifford, who worked with the Rottweilers who are stealing the show on FX's The Old Man. Until then, get back to work. Hey, Slate Plus members, thank you so much for your support, which we appreciate very much. I'm so grateful, in fact, that I asked some questions for your ears only. Let's take a listen. One of the things that I'm very conscious of, or I was very conscious of as I watched the first episode of season three, um, the Spree, uh, which is a sort of group of rival witches, have a working uh, piece of magic that they can do that allows them to change their faces. And at the beginning of the season, the three main characters who are being hunted they're debating whether to do that magic and change their faces. And a lot of people are saying this is the sensible thing, but as a showrunner, that must be an especially tricky question because you don't want to lose your stars. You don't want to lose their beautiful faces. Uh, As a viewer, I think he can't do that. They're not going to change the actresses. I I recognize you're not going to tell me what your decision was, but How did you kind of wrestle with that dilemma of, can anybody believe that you're really going to lose these actresses? Yeah, that was a tricky one. Luckily, I feel like it was supported by the mythology in the sense that spree stuff is Mm -hmm. so dirty and so kind of verboten, especially for Abigail from her very kind of traditional witch background. But, you know... Tally, everybody has a reason to feel kind of iffy about it. So 
we leaned on that, shall we uh-huh. say, and ho- hopefully that supported the transition because that's a tricky thing. You're absolutely right. Like, how do you lose your people? So the the particular way that the uh, and again it was supported by your having had this magic in the show since I think the first episode. There's a thing where the the spree they the way they rechange their faces or change their faces back is to kind of light a you know a Zippo lighter and kind of set their faces on fire, which is a very compelling image, but also kind of the thing that I, you know, as a kid, I think there would have been a warning on the TV saying, don't do that. Again, did you ever have sort of second thoughts about that particular just kind of beat of this process? I Now I do. I didn't before. <laughs> but now, now I totally do. Yeah, I just, it, I think the spree stuff had to feel a little dangerous and, mm. and look like, you know, there's a reason why this stuff is forbidden. So I think that's where that came from. And it was pretty. You yeah. know, there is that. There's some cool stuff, too, where you you see, I believe Scylla does it in season two. You see her take someone's face by doing mm-hmm. the flame thing and then ingesting the smoke, which is, is sort of how she she has access to that face again. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for being a member of Slate Plus. 